Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Let's talk about U.S.-Russia relations with Terrell Germain Starr. He's a senior reporter at The Root. He's writing a book that analyzes U.S.-Russia relations from a black perspective. Earlier this year, he had an interesting article in Mother Jones we're going to dabble in called The Russia Hacking Attack of 2016 Was Just a Taste. Here what we could, here's what we could be in for. And it's good to see you again, Terrell. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. You did a, a piece on the route. It was a video piece where you talked to a lot of people about the Russia investigation. What were you trying to accomplish with that? I wanted to see what people knew. I wanted to see if people were informed and plugged in. And I, what I found during that day, people were not. Well, let's hear a clip from the video piece that you did. Do you feel overwhelmed by the Russia investigation coverage? Uh, no, if I may ask, how, did, how does it directly affect me as a black person? I feel like it impacts... Um, the world as a whole, but mainly uh, minorities in general, because it just leaves us like in limbo. Like not a lot of us even pay, have the time to pay attention to things like that, to even really care about politics or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? Right now, I live in the Bronx, and we just down right now. It's burning. So now we focus on just trying to build our own community rather than worrying about who's in Russia and who's dealing with Russia. It is a problem that a lot of us don't even really care about that. But it's also a problem that we're pushed into situations that make us not care about that. That's a clip from Terrell Germain Starr's video on The Root and talking about what people know about the Russia investigation. Those people lay it on the line. They're busy. There's a lot going on. And they don't, they, they're not going to pay attention to every little detail. Oh, absolutely. And you really can't blame them because America is a rat race. We wake up in the morning Let's just say you have a family. You're waking up around 6 o'clock in the morning, 6.30, getting your kids ready for school. Um, you may sit down and eat as a family. You may not, but in either case, you may flip on the channel, look at what's going on with mother investigation. Do you understand what's going on? Uh, you understand that there's a problem. You understand that there is this possibility that Trump colluded with the Kremlin. Uh, but beyond that, all the other minutia. You just, you know, it's too hard to think about. And then after a couple hours, you just go to bed and you do the same thing again. But one, but the, several of the, uh, the the comments that the gentleman made about the fact that their own communities are burning is a very good point. And so, if you're somebody that comes from uh, a community that is over policed or a community where this under resourced, you're thinking about that. There are so many problems in this country that bog people down that they can't possibly think beyond their own neighborhood, let alone across the Atlantic Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean if you're talking about China, right? And I think one of the things that I never take for granted as a journalist is that I am paid to learn. I can read a book all day. And that is time on the job. The average American does not have the privilege to sit down and think. And we live in a country where having the time to think is a luxury. And that is a problem. And that is what's leading to people being tuned out of very important issues that affect people's lives, um, and, you know, including the Russian investigation. So something like um, cable television, CNN, MSNBC, they go on and on and on about the Russia investigation People aren't necessarily listening to that. Uh, you know, one thing you have to consider is how many people just have this background noise, right? Because if you're talking, you know, in the case of people, let's just say you're somebody that tunes in every day. You're automatically going to have your perspective. You already know 
what you're thinking. Now, CAN tries to play the middle ground. You have MSNBC that's considered, you know, the more liberal side. Then you have Fox News, which is for more for the conservatives. You know, then you have, you know, like, and if you're um, a really informed audience or somebody who wants to go beyond the yelling and screaming, you listen to public radio, right? <laughs> which is what I like about it. But that's a very small group of people. And even listening to this broadcast or listening to any other broadcast, you have to sit down and think about it. So that's one of the reasons why when people are listening to public radio, for example, they're probably listening on their way to work because that's the time between them having to, you know, go to their jobs and they have to tune everything out in order to to, to take care of their cast. They have that time to listen. But I think, you know, when, when you look at the, you know, the places, the, the, the stations that continue to, um, that continue to report on this, they're doing their jobs, right? Like we need to know this, this information needs to put out. So what you see is that the institution of journalism, the fourth estate, it is actually working. It is actually essential, right? The problem is that the institutions, the checks and balances that the fourth estate is holding accountable are not working. Okay, that that is the primary problem. We have a Supreme Court justice that's overrun by Trump flunkies. We have a Supreme, you know, particularly with Kavanaugh, you have a Congress that's supposed to be a check to the president. That's a bunch of flunkies on the Republican side. And so when you think about the executive, when you think about the judicial, when you think about, you know, Congress, so like all of these states are not working. And so. That means that you have to leave it up to the people and it's stressing people out because they're not supposed to be filling in for the work that all of our other estates are supposed to be doing. Are you optimistic about what's going to happen at the midterms here? Can something different happen? Oh, listen, I think if you talk to, you know, people of color, particularly black folks around this country, we are the epitome of optimism. Look, we we started off in this country as slaves. And, and, uh, you know, we have this historically we have seen the very, very worst. So. I am definitely optimistic, and I think that people, when I travel around the country, I talk to them, uh, I, I see a great deal of optimism. You see grassroots organizing, right? And so when you look at Stacey Abrams in Georgia, uh, you see record numbers of people going out to vote, but you also see that there are 53,000 people whose registration applications are on hold because Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, is holding them up. So there's optimism to go out to vote, but there's just so much opposition, races, in my opinion, voter suppression like opposition against people's um, optimism. And so you definitely see it out there. And I think what's happening right now that has not happened in previous midterms is that I think people have two years of Donald Trump and many people, you know, they don't like it. The enthusiasm is there, but people just fear the pushback. They fear the voter suppression efforts that are taking place in in Georgia. But I don't think that's really hurting people's resolve to go out and make a change at the polls. To bring this back to the Russia investigation, the um, piece that you did, the Russian hacking of 2016 was just a taste. Do you think that Russian hacking will be a thing in the midterms, uh, you then most press seems to be more interested in voter suppression and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And the, the Russia thing is not really talked about and, and as a possibility. There are a couple things going on here. One, so there is recent research now, you know, I can't cite it, but basically Kremlin backed entities, uh, when you think about bot machines, et cetera, are not actively engaged in disinformation campaigns uh, at this point, 
Uh, so that's the disinformation campaign aspect of it. As far as the cyber aspect, it's hard to tell. Now, what I do know per my reporting is that the that the United States government is chronically unprepared because the Trump administration has not emphasized uh, deep attention to it. And so normally what you expect in this situation is that you have the executive office of the White House to you know, work with state governments about what they need to do individually to prepare. And so and and what's really dangerous about it is that we live in a world where everything is based on a network. Right. And so when you log on to something with your phone, anything can be a hub to be hacked and it can touch you at any moment. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that certainly was not the case. And so you need not public officials educating the residents about what these possibilities are. So one thing that I wrote in my story and people don't know at all is that if you're in a place like Chicago or if you're in a place like New York, there is a, uh, a SCADA system that's basically designed to manage the traffic flow of subways. Those could be hacked by a DDoS attack. And people don't know it. And so what we see that it's taking place in ATM machines, you know, banks, it can happen on your subway station. It is very possible, but people don't know that. And I don't know if local governments are informing their people about that, maybe out of fear of not wanting to scare people or whatever the case may be. But people need to know. Now, going back to your point of... So, what is, so that could happen on Election Day, yes, for instance. absolutely. It could happen before Election Day. Yes, it could definitely happen. Now... Going back to voter suppression, I think as, as you know, as, as being members of media, we always have to make a decision of how much information are we going to give our audiences? How much do we feel like we're inundating them too much? The reality is that you can never underestimate how much you think your listeners, your readers can or cannot take. You give them as much information as possible, distill it to the point where they're able to absorb it. Uh, so obviously voter suppression is a big issue because ultimately you need to be able to vote. Right now, cyber, maybe that's taking a back burner for several reasons. One, the fact that generally a lot of reporters don't understand it. So this year is my first year where I'm really learning about cyber and I learned about cyber security based on my time living in Ukraine. And Ukraine is the testing ground for any attacks that take place across Europe and here in the United States. And so it was the warnings from Ukrainian officials that I heard and reported on. And and then I actually did more work into cooperation between Ukraine and the United States, because ultimately government officials here are working with Ukraine to see what's going on on their side and going on in their country. And they're learning how to prepare for it here first. And so you describe in the article, um, the Russian hacking of 2016 was just a taste. Here's what we could be in for in Mother Jones about the ways the grid gets knocked out in 2015, 2016, a fifth of Kiev, 2017, a more mature attack yet with a kind of uh, malware kind of thing that is not even malware anymore. It's something different. It's a different, yeah, the malware attacks, those are old, right? So (laughs) that's the problem. And, you know, this, this is a threat that is constantly evolving And we live in a situation where there's a fine line between private entities and public entities because you have some private entities in the case of Israel. Israel has a a large hub of cybersecurity firms that have ties to Israeli secret services. 
And so same case for China, right? Same case for other countries where you don't know if it's a state actor or you don't know if it's a private actor, right? And so what happens, particularly in Israel, this is in foreign, the latest edition of foreign policy, is that you have a number of uh, you know former uh, intelligence officials that work in the Israeli government five, 10 years, and they go into the private sector. So it's a private hub. That's not specific to Israel, specific to any you know country around the world. You bring up Israel because they have a disproportionate number of them. Now, saying all this is that we live in a world where the internet has become this great human invention that was never designed or accounted for security. And so now we're having to play catch up and playing catch up is hard. Just imagine going through preschool through college or through graduate school and you never learned your ABCs. Right. Or you never learn Spanish or another language. That's what we're doing, dealing with. You're learning another language and people are thinking that I could just kind of get by. And if, if, you know, if my phone is hacked or if my data and my bank is uh, compromised, then I'll deal with it. And so people is not in at the front of people's minds because they have not felt the full brunt of what a robust cyber attack can do to you. Now, it's happened across. It's happened in Ukraine regularly. So they understand. They know what it means to go to their turnstiles and they not work. They know how to go. They know what it feels like to go to an ATM and then not work. They know how it feels to go hours without electricity and know that the Kremlin was behind it. They know that. Americans, by and large, do not. And then when we do, maybe that'll be a wake-up call. Maybe it won't. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Terrell Germain Starr, senior reporter for The Root. We're talking about his Mother Jones article from earlier this year. The Russian hacking of 2016 was just a taste. Here's what we could be in for. I wanted to ask you a question. You were tweeting the other day about an article that uh, Max Boot wrote in Mm -hmm. The Washington Post. And Max Boot has a book about the corrosion of conservatism, why I left the right. And Max Boot was a guy who was uh, um, a relentless cheerleader for every war that was coming down the pike for many years. After the Iraq war, he had some sort of um, raising of consciousness and has been, you know, is now in the Washington Post uh, writing about why he's a different guy today. Um, What did did you make of this? He talked about – he went through the um, dark side of American conservatism and wrote about it from Eisenhower until today. And by gosh, he he finds out that there was racism going on. (laughs) I like the pun. (laughs) Listen, um, I don't need Max Boot to tell me anything about this because there have been scores upon scores upon scores of black scholars and black writers who've been writing about this. So this is not an epiphany for any of us, right? And for those of us who are learned, I think ultimately um, when I, when I read that article, I think it's an excerpt from his book, but my number one question to him would be, do you have any black friends? Do you know any black people? And both situations are bad. Now, and I'm going to tell you, one, let's say even if he had black friends, anybody who's informed, you know, he clearly didn't listen to him. So that makes it bad as well. Um, And I think if you talk to my colleagues, my contemporaries, I think what annoys us is that there is a way in which white men 
and white women to a, to a certain extent um, are able to go through these these periods of redemption and these periods of self-reflection and they introduce themselves to the world as, oh, I am enlightened as a result of God. I don't know what, you know, that he talked, you know, Max was talking about the Iraq war, right? And so, you know, I am changed and I have evolved. And so they appear in these publications that many of us, you know, would love to be in, but we can't. And 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 we've talked about this for years, but we can't because we're not white men and we have to be 100% about that. And so there's a classism um, that's involved in this redemption story because think about it. What type of access do you have in order to be publishing a post? Now, I'm publishing a post. Um, now, what I will say is that my trajectory to get there, I'm certain, was a lot different than Max Boots. And, and, and that's the whole thing. And I've been publishing the New York Times. I've been publishing a lot of large places. But again, my trajectory to get there was far different and tougher. So... Ultimately, when you think about another thing that bothered me about that article is that the Iraq war ultimately killed millions upon millions of people. And you think about a person who's a who, who's a voice of conscience. That voice of conscience was Representative Barbara Lee, who was the only person in Congress to say no. I don't need to hear Max Boot. I, I, you just give me Barbara Lee. The, you know, is she getting... And, you know, this type of attention, is she experiencing an epiphany? No, because she doesn't have to be a foreign policy expert to know that evading a country without all the facts is wrong. Okay? So, kind of. And she is not elevated in the conversation. And she's not elevated in the conversation. At at all for being right. Right. And so that's the whole thing. She did this. Think about the boldness it was for her to stare down all of her colleagues and say, no. And all the wrong people still have currency. And st- and that's what, exactly. And that's the whole thing. And I think that's what pisses people off about this, right? And so, you know, I could tell you what, I, what people were telling me privately. They're like, screw this dude, you know, to hell with him. Because ultimately, he is a part of a class of people whereby his conservative background does not allow him consequences for his actions and behavior. When you think about us when you think about the intellectual trajectory that we take none of it is supported you see people you know expressing their views on social media you see people expressing their views on you know medium posts that they're not getting paid for in many cases and so you have somebody like this who has a book talking about his growth where you have a whole generation of young talented people who can't get an internship so you know, I think it generally that the the that response evoked outrage, and let's just say he's sincere. And I don't, you know, I, th- I met him one time on a segment of MSNBC. You know, you just say he's you know a sincere person. Ultimately, it's inconsequential because what I would like to see him do is to elevate voices that have already said what he has said. Far with far more sophistication, with far more intellectual depth than he has to the same levels. You know what? Maybe you sh- maybe you should write this Washington Post article. Maybe he should. Maybe he should raise the voices of a Barbara Lee who have long talked about this. So, 
I don't I find I appreciate that at least he sees the wrong in what he does, but I don't see it as anything significant because it's highly underwhelming given the fact that there are people before him. Now keep up keep on bringing up Barbara Lee because she took a major sacrifice. She had death threats against her. She was an elected official who stared down a US president and said you are wrong. So I give no credence whatsoever to Max Boots' epiphany. I hope that he becomes a better person. And I hope that he elevates other voices. Until then, I will remain to be extraordinarily unimpressed. Terrell Germain Starr is a senior reporter at The Root. He's writing a book that analyzes U.S.-Russia relations from a black perspective. And we talked about his article in Mother Jones, The Russian Hacking of 2016 Was Just a Taste. Here's what we could be in for. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, film contributor Milos Dalek talks with Belgian film director of the new Steve Carell film, Beautiful Boy. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milo Stalik interviews the world's greatest filmmakers, and today he talks with Belgian filmmaker and screenwriter Felix van Groningen. He's nominated for the Best Foreign Film and the Academy Awards for The Broken Circle Breakdown, and now his new English-language movie is Beautiful Boy, starring Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet. Here's film contributor Milo Stalik. So, Felix, your new film, Beautiful Boy, is your first American film. Why an American film? Why did you make this in America? Why couldn't this be a Belgian story? Because it presented itself uh, on my path. I've been making movies in Belgium for a while, and and I had one film called The Broken Circle Breakdown, which got Oscar-nominated, and I started to meet a lot of people in in L.A. while doing promotion for that Mm -hmm. film. And um, one day I met people from Plan B, a great production company who had just done 12 Years a Slave. And then they pitched me this story, this story of um, a father and a son, intimate you know, portrayal of their relationship. And they both had written a book that was dealing with years of the son's struggle with addiction. And so the idea of a movie based on two books, two points of view, I thought was really, really interesting. And what's different about the books? What's different about the two points of view? Well, David Chef, the father's journey, it's a real... Um, he's a journalist. He's a journalist, yeah. So he talks about Nick growing up, about like in the tiniest detail, he talks about how he tried to take care of his son, uh, started a second family, and started to see his son spiraling out of control, and, um, and a dedicated is- father, and trying to 
save him, understand him, and ultimately, like, you know, getting to a point where he realizes that he cannot help him. And, and by doing so, he sort of saves him. But it's a very mythical journey, I would say. Whereas Nick's story is really a person struggling with addiction, and it's really told from the inside. It is very visceral, him living on the streets. We didn't go that far, but I think his point of view was interesting to understand how hard it is to stay sober one day at a time, how easy it is to relapse. And, and just the turmoil going on in, in a young person's head, I could really relate to that. So uh, so it's a film that kind of works on two levels, right? Because one level is the story of addiction, which is common, crosses all socioeconomic boundaries. Uh, and this is a family which is a middle-class family, basically broken home because the parents are divorced. But on the other hand, it's also a story of this emotional relationship between the father and the son, especially. I mean, Yeah, as most parents need to go to a journey of understanding that you need to let go, that you cannot choose for your child or to live or die. And Nick's journey is one of somebody growing up and, and realizing he needs to be uh, responsible for himself. What I thought was unique about it was combining those two points of view made you really, uh, in, a, in a simple way, have like an insight in how emotionally complex it is when people struggle with addiction and, and for the people loving them. And did you know a lot about addiction before this? I mean, just as a general information or how much? It's something that, that I talked about in other films. Uh, so it's a team that I've been intrigued by, I would say, or fascinated by. You know, I've seen addiction right. as many people from afar and nearby also in my family. So I learned a lot from the books. Let me put it this way. It was an eye-opener, so I thought it was important to do it. I've seen it and I've studied it. Because one of the things also in the in the film is the role of the father, played by Steve Carell, who has trouble dealing with this emotionally, right? Because there's the ex-wife. Soon as something happens to the son, he immediately kind of flies off the handle and escalates into an argument. He's trying to start a new family. And so it's his own journey of juggling all of these things. Correct. Uh, he questions himself, as parents do, I assume. What could have I done better? Where did I go wrong? Uh, yeah, Steve Corral plays David. It's an incredible performance, I feel. It's very constrained and it is internal in a sense but there's so much going on inside and in the movie we show his struggle or his internal journey also through flashbacks so we play with time we jump through time we see David and Nick when Nick is a lot younger and when it's a very pure bond we see other scenes where David for instance has a joint with his son and he questions himself was this the right thing to do or not he tried to bond with his son but maybe he gave you you know not the best example you're listening to worldview I'm Milos Telix speaking with filmmaker Felix von Groningen did I pronounce it well? Groningen? It's uh, von Groningen. <laughs> okay, sorry, I, I want to attempt that. Uh, it's really, really hard. <laughs> I always have fun like people correcting people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whose new film is called The Beautiful Boy. It seems to me that one thing about this film is that it's a journey. I mean, there are small successes, right? When the sun gets stabilized for a little while, they find a new way of a new intervention that seems to work. And then, of course, it's also the contrary side of that is the negative side is this addiction, which, of course, has a hold over the son and comes back and returns. So he goes off the wagon and then he returns. And meth is the principal drug here. Yeah. As David learns, relapse is a part of recovery, something that he needs to come to terms with. I chose to do this film based on these two books, these, these two amazing books, because it felt real to me. And 
the repetitive nature of addiction is part of it, and we didn't want to stay away from it. Uh, but on the other hand, I could only do this film because of the family that I'm portraying. And it's a really beautiful family. David and Nick, the real people. Um, because they're still they're alive. I mean, they they're are, alive. They're, uh, they got through it as a family. It is a, I mean, it's an emotional roller coaster of a film. And it goes to dark places sometimes because it's real and raw. But it, it is a hopeful story. David and Nick, they've seen the film. They're really happy with it. Mm. They are also promoting it and getting it out. And... They and me too wanted to share their story in order to lay it out there, have people talk about it and conversations about it coming from a place of empathy. I understand the characters, what they're going through, and I wanted an audience to understand them too. I mean, there are no easy answers when it comes to addiction. That's what they learn, and you know that goes for everyone. So what would you want an audience member to take away from this film? Why should people who don't have a direct relationship with addiction in their family go and see it? Because it's an emotional rollercoaster of a film and it's a portrayal of unconditional love. And great performances. Timothy Chalamet, who plays the son, he's been on a, on a rise since he did Call Me By Your Name. And it's really incredible what he does. And so how did you work with the actors? How did you work with Steve Carell and Timothy? I mean, did you talk to them a lot? How did they get into the understanding these roles? I am a director who loves uh, working with actors and part of getting to a very uh, truthful, authentic and unpredictable performance, I would say, is taking the time to rehearse. We rehearsed for a couple of weeks and the first week we really took our time to just, you know, go through the script, get the arc of the characters right. While we do that, I talk to every scene, I rewrite a bit, I listen to my actors a lot. I want them to feel safe to try anything. You know, improv a little bit is always a nice thing to really get to know each other and to feel out, you know, how far you can go. And, and then when I'm directing, I push, I pull. I What I love about directing is every day is a different day and you never know how you're going to get to what you need to get to. And what I need to get to is I need to be moved. Uh, I need to cry behind my monitor. And so I will uh, try and push them until I, I cry. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Wilhelm Hamilostelic speaking with uh, filmmaker Felix von Kroningen. Is that better? That's almost. <laughs> almost yeah. there. Okay, and about von 10 years. Okay. <laughs> Whose new film is called The Beautiful Boys, starring Steve Carell and Timothy uh, Chalamet. So, what is your what is next for you? Um, I just became father. Uh, so that's already past now. I, it's I now, know, it's now I know, but I'm, I'm taking the time to really enjoy it. And I've uh, worked incredibly hard uh, the last 15 years. And um, I'm enjoying this, getting the film out there. And I'm working on things. I just haven't decided yet. I'll see. Uh, so in your filmmaking career, which you started young, right? You went to Insas? No, to I went to Kask in Kent. Okay. And so you've been making films for 15 years. It's your sixth feature. Yeah. So uh, what brought you to film and what were your influences? Um, it was really uh, not so good films, but I was fascinated by, by this Belgian uh, comedian. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw a lot of American real Hollywood productions as a kid, I think, and I was just always amazed by the medium. Um, I think what helped in my career is my mom started working in TV when I was really young, my brother in film. So I used to visit TV sets, film sets, and saw how it all came about. And was really, from a very early age on, fascinated. And 
had a video camera at some point, started making little films and just had this wild idea like, you know, I'll become a director. But I I didn't really know what it meant. You know, I went to film school and there really realized I had to work really, really hard to become good, I think, or to become distinct. And I was lucky to meet an enormous amount of amazing people with who I worked together and who pushed me and who... Your producer, who was your teacher, right? Or... Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, so the person in Belgium who produced all of my movies, he was a teacher in film school, and he he liked what I did and said, like, if you want to make a first long feature, I will help you. And, you know, I was just, I was really young, but it was amazing that he saw that in me, And but I went for it. Oh, going back just for a second to the actors, I mean, so really the, the idea is to create a very a space in which the actors feel safe, right? I mean, a lot of filmmakers talk about that. I mean, like creating a... But that safe space then allows you to push them into places where they haven't been because they're not so afraid, right? Because this whole fear is obviously a factor for for a lot of actors. Yeah, safe places is a place where you can try things without without being judged or it's always about making it better. You know, a teacher once told me, 70% 70% of directing is casting. If you get that right, the rest will come by itself. So, And I still do believe in that. I take my time to cast. I need to really fall in love. So when you got the right actor for the right role, it's not that hard to. And yeah, with both Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet, I, both of them were just perfect for this, these roles. You're listening to Wolvio. I'm Milos Telic, speaking with filmmaker Felix von Groningen, whose new film is called Beautiful Boy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Beautiful Boy opens next week at the AMC River East 21 and the Landmark Century Center. Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport with Nari Safavi, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend, and we'll talk about a new photography exhibit in town. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen pal, Nari Safavi, is here with recommendations. Good to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here again. Let's take off a couple of quick mentions about things to do this weekend. Where are we going first? Exactly. First, we're going to Ukraine. There is an opening reception going on tonight at the contemporary Ukrainian uh, of contemporary Ukrainian graphics at the turn of the 20th and 20th 21st century, happening at the Ukrainian Institute of Modern Art today, Friday. The reception is opening from six to nine p.m. and the show will be going on for a few weeks. It's a uh, it covers a lot uh, that even 
even goes back to the Soviet era, I'm hearing. But the Ukrainian uh, Council General here in Chicago has been supportive of trying to get retrieve some of these interesting graphics going back to that era. So it, it looks like it should be an educational experience, if nothing else. They're always very sharp there at the Ukrainian they Institute are, of Modern Art there on Chicago Avenue. Uh, where are we going next? We're going to do some singing, I hear. We're going to do some singing. Larry Opera presents an international singing phenomenon called Choir, 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 and uh, the Fleetwood Mac experience, where I guess this time they're focusing on Fleetwood Mac. And you go over there and you become a part of the choir and you start to sing some of these uh, international or even, you know, uh, uh, local uh, local songs. I guess Choir, Choir, Choir was conceived in Toronto and Fleetwood Mac, I guess they're British, so it counts as a global cultural experience. <laughs> Just barely. Now, so you, you arrive and then uh, people who come get sheet music lyrics and you're divided into voice types and range and taught vocal harmonies and within 90 minutes you become a choir and I don't think you even need the sheet music for Fleetwood Mac stuff, I think. Exactly. That stuff has been drummed into our heads pretty thoroughly. Exactly. Um, where are we going next, Nara? Uh, first and foremost, what we're talking about today is a conversation that's going to be happening uh, between a photographer and scholar. Dr. Deborah Willis uh, is, a, is, a, is a very renowned photographer uh, and uh, has been doing a lot of work on uh, – uh, well, I, we'll, we'll let, uh, let, let her talk about her own history – and. Uh, uh, and Professor Amy Mooney uh, is at Columbia College, and she's a historian of photography and art, art history. And they will, they'll be having a conversation about uh, what we call uh, the um, – com- uh, it's, it's about – African-American Chicago, history of African-American uh, Chicago uh, and, and the archives. And they're trying to put together an exhibition. So – it's great to see you both. Yeah. Thanks for coming. It's good to be here. Thank you. And Amy Mooney is Associate Professor of Art History at Columbia College Chicago. And Deborah Willis is a photographer, artist, curator, and scholar um, pertinent to this conversation. She's the author of, uh, of many books, put together many books, but Reflections in Black, A History of Black Photographers, 1840 to the Present. Yeah, sounds like a pretty seminal work. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice too. to meet you as well. Thank you for having us. Um, this exhibition you're putting together, Amy. What Tell us about it. Where, where, what's the idea behind it? The idea behind it is that Deb and I have been doing extensive research for a number of years, and we found a trove of African-American photographers whose work is barely known, despite being very prolific during their lifetimes. Because Chicago had such a burgeoning black media, there were many opportunities for African-American photographers to publish and to have their work circulated. I was surprised to read how many uh, African-American photography shops there were, how many uh, professional photographers there were. Right. It was really exciting to discover the work. It began as a project where I was looking for portraits of African-American entrepreneurs, people that we know really well, like Robert Abbott, who was the editor and founder of The Defender, um, Anthony Overton, an entrepreneur, uh, someone who's really big in cosmetics. And as I was looking through their archives, I started to notice the names of the photographers, and they weren't cataloged. So it was really important to start to take note of them. And then especially I looked to my mentor and photo historian, Deb Willis, to help me try to identify some of them. And some of the names we knew and others are brand new to us. 
Uh, Deb, what is is this sound typical to you? Does this sound like something uh, places have been through before? Yeah, I, I started my research in the 70s and found the exact same experience Amy's having. Chicago was central to me um, and my research early on um, because of early photographers like King Daniel Ganaway and uh, Miles Webb and others um, from the Sinstack um, family. And I felt that these photographs needed to be known. The work of the women who pose for them, the work of women um, basically ignored in, in the archives, and I thought it was really an opportunity. And I visited the Harsh Collection back in the 80s, and so it's like amazing to be, come back to revisit that work. No. Wow, that's uh, you know there, there's such a treasure trove of things to choose from. I'm wondering, you know, how do you uh, what the selection criterion would be? What could possibly be when you're doing such a thing? There is a you know, and what kind of a eye do you think the people who took these photographs uh, were taking it for? Was it were they basically like celebrating these moments like? Uh, all human being, or could it be that the African Americans were trying to humanize themselves to others? Uh, tell us a little bit about well, the process. I think the title of, of the show, um, "Say It with Pictures," says um, is, is to me it's it's a central way of how do we say it? We say that we are beautiful, we're human, we're powerful, um, we have our businesses, and that's right. basically how we're educated. And I think that that's the the. I guess the motto for all of the photographers, you know, that they're here and the subjects were there and have been ignored in the larger press. Right. And for us, this is an opportunity to contextualize the history of Chicago as well. So thinking about the Great Migration and having this kind of onslaught of people coming into an urban center where they're interested in self-identity and fashioning themselves, getting the latest and the greatest and, you know, creating new lives for themselves. So you see this in the pages of the magazine, like Half Century or Abbott's Monthly. And these magazines were circulating within a broader context of African-American political identity that we are oh so familiar with, especially through studies on the Harlem Renaissance. So for us, it's an opportunity to kind of open that up a bit and understand that this conscious building wasn't just limited to New York, but it was also happening in cities across the United States, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Detroit, etc., what are uh, the photos that uh, really strike you that you want to make sure you get in the exhibition? The photos that I'm most excited about are actually by women photographers because, again, we know so very little about them. So I'm very excited about um, Carol Charlotte Page's work, and especially as she was renowned for being a violinist in addition to a photographer. And I'm really curious about their entrepreneurship and the way that they established these as businesses and advertised in a variety of black media. And this also has then established uh, very specific political and economic campaigns, like don't buy where you can't work. And so her agency in this way, I think, is really a full picture of a person um, that, again, we don't have consciousness of. And, and the follow-up is there, Gordon Parks photographed here in Chicago in, in the 19, late 30s and early 40s, and that history is, is silenced. And I think that if we can add Gordon Parks to this discovery, it would be a fantastic um, opportunity. A great photographer, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, he's someone who went on to be mega popularity. Yes, there's a new book, The New Tide, um, an exhibition as well at the National Gallery that opens next month, 
and it's an opportunity to see Gordon first 10 years, and most of it was in Chicago. Yeah, and I understand that Dawood Bey is going to be involved in some of this, uh, at least in the in the talk tonight, or will, will he be there? Or? We hope as an audience member, definitely. Oh, okay, okay. Our esteemed colleague uh, <laughs> he, he has is, extended he... responsibilities. But definitely Dawood and many of the photographers at Columbia certainly have been wonderful yeah. colleagues to discuss this. And I really also have to give credit to all the staff at the Museum of Contemporary Photography who have welcomed our project and been our main supporter. And then, of course, we must recognize that we are part of the Terra Art and Design Chicago initiative as well. They're actually one of the main funder for our work here. Yeah, they have been they have been supporting a lot of interesting Indeed. projects that we're we really happy covering about that. over here. So yeah. we're talking with art historian Amy Mooney and photographer and scholar Dr. Deborah Willis, and we're discussing the upcoming launching of the exhibition, Say It with Pictures, Then and Now, Chicago's African American Photographers. 1890 to 1930. And one of the things I was reading was about how many of the photographs were in the Chicago Public Library's hands. I, I was kind of, I, I didn't know they did that kind of thing. Right. And well, you have been blessed with a number of amazing archivists who have actively gone out and collected Chicago's black history. And so the Vivian Harsh, for decades, there was Michael Flug. Right now, we also benefit from the work of Beverly Cook. And they have done these really deep dives. And what's important about this project is that the photographers themselves don't have archives. Instead, we're finding all of their work in the archives of others. And this creates a historic scheme. You start to realize the interconnectivity that cuts across classes and genders and neighborhoods that perhaps we really didn't understand before. So it's kind of like revealing a, yeah. re- revealing the history uh, that we didn't know we had. Right, exactly. Right and there's also great collections, yeah. too, um, visible through the Black Metropolis Research Consortium. They, too, have been one of our supporting par- partners. Explain actually, who they are. Oh, the Black Research, uh, Black Metropolis, Uh, BMRC um, is a consortium of libraries, universities, public institutions that have um, collected memorabilia, archives, papers of African-American history here in Chicago. And they connect through a central agency that is run at the University of Chicago. And for the longest time, they benefited from funding from the Mellon Foundation. And they created a series of fellowships. And actually, that's how I got into this project. I had a summer fellowship, and I was able to spend all my summer days down at the Vivian Harsh Collection. And that's where I found all of these photographs. Um, Deb, what kind of eras do you divide things into when you when you if if African American photography started in 1840 do you see a, a evolution of uh, what was going on with the photographers yeah I, a number of them focused on the basic art of portraiture and port you know the aspect of wanting to create a business but also creating a sense of artistry and that's something that the aesthetic of portraiture was central to the early photographers Afterwards, they started photographing the well-known people, um, the uh, orators and the abolitionists and the um, well-documented people in the press. And that's where a number of the photographers also began to think about how do we highlight our leaders and and our key figures. And then the black press is a central way of telling the story. I think it's because migration is a central um, place in terms of Chicago and New York, but also the black press, the opportunity not only to advertise businesses, but to showcase photographers and, and public lives of people is a central way of, for the black press. 
And is that where you end up with more everyday pictures? Because I mean, some of the nicest pictures I, I've been looking at are the everyday ones. Yes. It, it tells a story that, that normalizes the, the communities that, that moved north, you know, what they were interested in. Um, and it's in looking at the idea of how photographers looked at family life. Mm-hmm. Family life is, is, you know, is the core of what makes a society, and that's something that it's about citizenship as well. And so we think about migration and citizenship, and it's essential. Well, the story on the on our history of African Americans in Chicago is that you know the Great Migration. A lot of people from the South moved up to Chicago, especially from Mississippi Delta, come up to Chicago, and they basically come as rural people, but they are trying to become uh, you know urbanized, and they come here for jobs. But it seems to be like very quickly, an artistic and an entrepreneurial elite emerges out of that. Uh, they don't just remain industrial mm-hmm. workers. And that's that's really what's amazing about how quickly that elite kind of develops. And do do you guys document that, come, going from being just uh, part of the Great Migration to all of a sudden becoming part of that elite, the urban elite? You know? But that's part of it. But also that there, there are four generations here of, of, of black middle class here in, in Chicago. And that's a central story. It's also silence that, you know, blacks who own businesses in this, in this um, city and they're documented in the way that they, were social, they worked in the social, social work. They worked in different medical fields. And right. so that's a way of sharing the, the, the both, both classes that we see here. Well, I hope people can come out tonight at 7 o'clock and see your conversation. It's happening at the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Michigan Avenue, 600 South Michigan Avenue. Yes, that's right. We are in Ferguson Hall, and it starts at 6, 6 to 7. And then it's followed by a reception at the Museum of Contemporary Photography, where people can hear about the mini hats of Ralph Arnold exhibition, uh, which just opened up last night. Amy Mooney is Associate Professor of Art History and Visual Culture at Columbia College Chicago, and Dr. Deborah Willis is Professor and Chair of the Department of Photography and Imaging at New York University. She is a photographer artist, made, has made a whole lot of books, and uh, thanks for joining us, and thanks for coming into Chicago and talking with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Monday on Worldview, we will continue our Puerto Rican Instruction series, and I will talk with some of the f- uh, filmmakers who were in town for the first Puerto Rican Film Fest, which is happening this weekend. You can check that out as well. Have a great weekend. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.